You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, there you go. There's something like that last little leg. He just like creeps across and out of the frame. It's just kind of cute to me. I don't know why. So, well, welcome. Glad you guys are here. Um, This is our second week in this uh, teaching series called Stuck. And uh, we're just going to jump right in. And in case you missed last week, I do want to catch you up and and talk about why we're talking about this and and why I think it's so important. Um, There's a lot of these times in our lives, and um, I'm this way where I, I, I want to be here spiritually, but I get stuck over here. I want to see this happen, but it just doesn't. Anybody resonate with that at all? It's just like, ah, I want to see this thing happen. I just cannot get there. And, and in short, it could be summarized by maybe this feeling of what I expected from God doesn't match up with my experience in God. I go, well, where is the problem? And so last week we talked about anxiety. And um, I'm, I'm a big fan of the idea that when you talk about these issues, um, you almost strip them of their power. Have you ever noticed that? We talked about anxiety, and there's a lot of really positive feedback, and, and a lot of it was basically just, hey, thanks for talking about this. And so we're just going to kind of continue to push these things into the light so we can see them. And so a couple quick words before we get into it this morning. Um, First off, uh, one of my favorite theologians, a guy named John Stott, said this. He said that uh, a good preacher needs to live with one foot firmly anchored in the Word and one foot firmly anchored in the newspaper. And I love that idea because um, I would love it, by the way, if we could just talk about, like, peace and love and joy and happiness and, like, you know, galloping through these wildflower meadows with God, like, that would be awesome if that was the Christian life. But the truth of the matter is, in our world, in our culture, in our church, and maybe even in your own life, anxiety and fear and shame and worry surface. And so we, ha- we talk about them. That's why we are here where we are. I believe churches need to talk about these kind of things. But beyond that, I think churches need to talk about how we're talking about them, if that makes sense and doesn't sound too heady. Uh, We need to talk about the way in which we handle issues of mental health, Um, because it is important to talk, but to know kind of what's around here. And so last week, we set out three kind of ground rules, and in case you missed them, they're really important, and so I want to go over them just really quickly, um, just so we're all on the same page. And so ground rule number one, um, any conversation around mental health should begin and end with love. Jesus doesn't shame sufferers, and neither should we. You look all over the New Testament, suffering people come to Jesus, and they come to him, and then he welcomes them. And sadly, in our world, there's a stigma associated with even addressing these issues. It shouldn't be that way in our world, but it definitely should not be that way in the church. And so any conversation around mental health should always begin and end with love. Ground rule number two, um, individuals are not issues. People are not problems. If I asked you this morning, we're talking about fear, and if I said, tell me what you're afraid of, and if the, if the walls were down, and we could really be open and honest, you know, 800 people here in North Canton Chapel, I get 800 different answers. And so what that kind of means is these issues are as deep and personal as they are complex. 
Individuals are not issues. People are not problems. Ground rule number three, dimmers are better than light switches. And we talked about this. This one's kind of my favorite personally is, you know, you walk into your house, you got two ways to turn on the lights. You got a light switch, which you can hit on in a dark room, and instantly there's light everywhere. You're all good. But then you've also got dimmers, which are like, take a little bit more time. This is the conversation around mental health. Very rarely, if you're feeling anxious this morning, if you're feeling fearful this morning, very rarely am I going to say anything that's going to make the light just instantly go on, all the problems go away. Doesn't work like that, okay? It's more like dimmers. And so my word for you is if you are feeling anxious, if you're feeling fearful, all these things are just rising to the top of your heart, go with a dimmer, not a light switch. Progress, not perfection, okay? So that's just kind of where we're going. So this morning we're talking about fear. Fear. And we're going to visit a rarely visited corner of the Old Testament. We're going to be in the book of 2 Kings. And so if you need to take a minute to turn to your table of contents, you definitely can do that. This is a shame-free zone. Uh, don't you love it when like, the teaching pastor goes, all right, we're going to be in Obadiah. And you're like, I don't know where that is. I have to turn to the table of contents. So um, if, you're, if you've got a hard copy of God's Word, get to 2 Kings chapter 6. You can scroll there uh, or you can follow along on the screens behind me. 2 Kings chapter 6. This is a story that unfolds in four scenes, four scenes over about 18 verses that relate a story from 2,500 years ago about fear. And as it unfolds, I promise you that the feeling of fear then is just as relevant and important and tangible as any feeling of fear that you might have now. So we don't know who wrote 2 Kings. A lot of the New Testament, you kind of know who wrote that, even some of the Old Testament. You know, the author of 2 Kings is sometimes a mystery and scholars debate, but we do know when 2 Kings was written, and that's actually the most important part. Here's why. 2 Kings, first and 2 Kings, it's a history book, and it reads that way. Dates and details, stories and sequences. 2 Kings tells the story of events that take place between about 930 B.C. and 500 B.C. It talks about the rise and fall of a bunch of kings, some good, some bad. Talks about what they got right. Turns out not much. What they got wrong turns out quite a lot. But here's the catch. The books of 1 and 2 Kings weren't written in Israel, and they weren't written in a time of peace. Here's the story. About 600 B.C., the king of Babylon kicks in the door to Israel, puts a hook through the king's jaw, seriously, and leads the people off into captivity. And so whoever wrote 2 Kings wrote it from Babylon as a captive. That's important. This was written with a nostalgic look in the rearview mirror. So we shouldn't imagine that the writer of 2 Kings is sitting in some plush Judean library surrounded by ancient scrolls. No. He's more likely sitting in the Babylonian equivalent of a soup kitchen with an empty stomach and an empty heart. And thinking back on the past few hundred years, all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he starts writing about kings and kingdoms and temples and worshipers and people and leaders all with an eye to what his people, all in the same boat, all sitting in Babylon, are feeling and thinking and wrestling with and asking. Now think for a minute. 
Imagine that's you. Imagine you're there. You're God's chosen people. You're 900 miles away from home. Once upon a time, God gave you land and law and leadership. You haven't seen those for three decades. You heard all these stories about like what God did back then, like Moses, Red Sea, Burning Bush. Oh, but those seem like fairy tales from Grandma and Grandpa. He brought you out of slavery. Congratulations, you're back in it again. You were the chosen people of Almighty God, and now you're the refugee trophies of a pagan king. Get the picture? Now, if that's you... What kind of questions would you want to ask God? God, why is all this happening? God, where are you? Have you left? God, what is going on? How could you let this happen? What happened to the glory days under David and Solomon? When is all this going to end? If you can get your head in that space, that's the feeling of 2 Kings. By the way, do those questions sound at all familiar? Anybody asking those questions in these days? As it turns out, the social media feeds of Israel and exile are not that different from America in 2021. Quick little side note, by the way, if we do not cultivate this rich biblical literacy, like learning to see ourselves in this, we are robbing ourselves of treasures yet unfound and weakening our resolves for battles yet unfought. And so we've got to learn to see ourselves in this thing. So... With the noose of hopelessness tightening and the kettle of fear about to boil over, the writer of 2 Kings, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, puts pen to paper, eager to quell the fears of a very fearful people. And that brings us to 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8. Scene 1. Now when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God, that's code for Elisha, we'll get to him in a minute. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel. He said, beware you don't go down to this place, for the Syrians are going down there. This is something that God had shown Elisha. The king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus, he used to warn him so that he saved himself more than once or twice. See what's going on? The mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called to his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants says, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who's in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I might send and seize him. And was told, Behold, he's in Dothan, which is this small town. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now, if you know the Old Testament, you know that these pagan kings that show up from time to time are a little annoyed and get a little paranoid around these pesky Israelite prophets. So the king of Syria, who's elsewhere named Ben-Hadad, which literally means son of the thunder god, so a name that kind of conjures up a little bit of fear, This king probably takes the cake when it comes to paranoia. So here's what's happening. Ancient kings had courts, and those courts were full of servants. Servants who prepared the king's dinner, and servants who, not kidding, cleaned the king's teeth after dinner. Not a gig, anything I really like to do. Servants who made the bed in the king's bedroom, and then servants who waited outside the king's bedroom while the king slept. 
And all of those servants had listening ears. And some of those listening ears were connected to loose lips. And some of those loose lips were connected to ambitious hearts that told quiet whispers in exchange for courtly favors. And so Ben-Hadad, who's increasingly frustrated at these like can't-win skirmishes with Israel, starts to imagine that somehow his private pillow talk is leaking into public knowledge. So he develops this paranoid fear that there's a traitor in his court. Curious thing, fear. So he calls the servants together and he draws a line in the sand. It's there in verse 11 where he says, Who of us is for the king of Israel? And probably afraid of Thunder King's wrath. One of them goes, And then any of us, it's Elisha, this Israelite prophet down here. Elisha, interestingly enough, the spiritual successor to Elijah, the guy who embarrassed Ben-Hadad's grandpa back at Mount Carmel. If you remember that. So what's Ben-Hadad do? He finds out where Elisha's living, Dothan, this small town, and then he sends this army of chariots and horses down to kill him, and they travel at night, surround the city. Now, this is not a small thing. Okay, this is a king who's paranoid enough to muster a force large enough to surround a city, all in the paranoid pursuit of one man. Curious thing, fear. So what happens? Night falls over Dothan. Fires have gone out. Everybody's sleeping. It's a quiet night. And in the cool of the pre-dawn darkness, Ben-Hadad's army moves in silently, undetected. And they position themselves on the hillsides around Dothan like an unstoppable storm front ready to strike. It may have been the faint whinny of a horse, or it may have been the distant clop of a hoof, but Elisha's servant wakes up. Take a look in verse 15, scene 2. When the servant of the man of God arose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he, that's Elisha, said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And as confidence-inspiring as Elisha's little words are there, that's pretty awesome. But here's what I love about this scene. I love what he doesn't say. Elisha doesn't say, like, those guys, they're nothing to worry about. Those guys on the hillside, like, chump change, don't worry about it. He doesn't make them look small, and I think we should pay attention to that. Those guys who are with them, like, yeah, that's the real deal. Chariots and horses on the hillside, this horde of the Syrian army, yeah, they're there. That's not a joke. That's not a bluff. That is a scary thing. They're not playing around. When given the chance to find confidence, Elisha doesn't seek to shrink the size of the enemy. He doesn't, like, collapse into, like, some sophomoric smack talk. He's serious about it. He doesn't try to put a positive spin on it, like, oh, don't worry, everything's going to be just fine, right? And I think that's important because that's the tendency. When things don't look good, we try and, like, quick put a positive spin on it. At least I do. Like, no, it's going to be fine, it's going to be fine, it's going to be fine. All the while, deep down, knowing, I hope it's going to be okay, but I don't know. Hmm. Quick parenting tip. 
that little monster under the bed, it does little good to make little of the monster in their imagination. It does greater good to make much of their daddy down the hall. And I know we're just getting into the meat of this text, but let me put 2 Kings 6 right in front of our 2021 faces for a second. Every crack of uncertainty that we felt in 2019 before the proverbial stuff hit the proverbial fan, every crack of uncertainty has now expanded into a full-on fracture. You feel that? Every little whisper of worry has now crescendoed into this seismic shout. Every little flicker of fear, forest fire. Welcome to 2021. You feel it? Like, sure you do. Like, it's dripping off the walls of our world these days, right? Every newscast, every post, every, like, passive-aggressive look from somebody who kind of disagrees with you about insert issue here, every sigh after a hard conversation, every unresolved question, every blank stare at the ground when you don't know what to say. The monster is out there. He's scary. Spoiler alert, he's not going anywhere. The fear wagon that is 2021 is fully loaded and has surrounded everything that you thought was safe. And hear me on this. It is paper-thin theology And it is naive theology to make little of our enemy. But it is a rich theology and a robust theology and a substantial theology to make much of our king. Are you afraid? If we could just be honest, are you afraid? I think we have good reason to be. Chariots on hillsides, guys. It's not a bluff. And I'm not going to tell you any different. I don't think we can afford to be that simple. But if the threat is all you see, then fear has already won. We're no different than the child afraid of the monster because she forgot about her daddy down the hall. Don't make little of your enemy. Make much of your king. So what happens? A nameless servant who's shaking in his sandals and an Israelite prophet who seems to be surprisingly, unnervingly okay with everything. (laughs) Scene three. And here's the climax we've been waiting for. Take a look just in verse 17. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. What a great prayer that is. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Isn't that great? Gosh, what a good scene. What that must have been to have that guy just go, oh, Here's what I love about this, is because it's, it's really ironic, and we're going to get to the power of this in a minute, but what I really love, it's really hilarious, is could you imagine being the servant standing there, okay? Because what Elisha prays for the servant is probably what the servant was praying for Elisha, ironically. He's probably sitting there going, like, Lord, I know this Elisha guy, like, he's like your dude, and you're really close with him, and you speak to him, and he leads people, and yada, 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 but like, God, we're going to die. Can you open his eyes so he can see this? And then Elisha's over here going, Lord, open his eyes, right? It's so funny. Two people standing in the exact same place see two totally different things. So let's get to the theology deep weeds here. Okay, so what's actually happening? I don't know if you believe in angels. They exist whether or not you believe in them. God's word teaches us this. So here's some deep weeds for you. 
God's Word talks about different kinds of angels. The first kind, we actually talked about a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Isaiah 6. These kinds of angels are called seraphim or seraph, okay? And seraphs, their job is to eternally live in the presence of God and just sing, holy, holy, holy. This is a high order of angels who just are dedicated to nothing but the ceaseless worship of Almighty God. They're called the burning ones, and that's just all they do. They just worship God over and over and over and over again. These aren't seraphs. Okay? There's another kind of angels, uh, just kind of like messenger angels. Okay? Literally, the word angel means messenger, so maybe that'll help you out. Messenger angels are these private, personal kind of angels that show up all over the Old Testament, even into the New Testament. Um, you think about uh, uh, Abraham and Sarah's visitors in Genesis 18. You think about when Jacob wrestled an angel in Genesis 32. You think about Gabriel, who came and talked to Joseph in the New Testament. These messenger-type angels are, usually come with one of two op- like agendas. One, they either say, from a prophetic tone, to say, I am here to show you something. Or they come with like a personal tone, like I'm here to help you with something. And in case you're wondering, I think those those angels exist today, and I think they still walk our earth. The New Testament talks about that. These guys aren't that, though. There's this third kind of angels. It's this mass, wide array, almost this like military scene where God moves on behalf of his people, and he wants them to see this expanse of angelic beings. It's called the heavenly hosts. And they show up whenever God's people need defended and they can't do it for themselves. And the angelic hosts come and they stand up for, they defend, they fight for, they plead the case of God's people when they're powerless. That's these. So back to the text. Elisha's prayer, Lord, open his eyes. Here's what I want you to see. That doesn't get rid of the enemy yet. Not yet. It surrounds the enemy. That's an important distinction for us to make. The visible army surrounding Elisha's hometown in the early dawn, bent on taking his life, are themselves surrounded by an invisible army lit up by heaven. I want you to consider something. Right at those moments... When you are ready to throw in the towel, right at those moments where you're going, that's it, I'm out, I'm done, I quit, I can't hold on anymore. In those moments, and I'm there a lot, it's like those words that like just don't come. You know what I'm talking about? Like you can't really even pray. And then like tears come and they're the ones that kind of burn in the corners of your eyes a little bit, like that kind of stuff. In those moments, what does it do to your picture of God to know that the unseen yet unstoppable armies of heaven are fighting fights you can't fight and claiming victories that you will never see this side of eternity? And I know that sounds like charismatic and sensational and all that stuff, but I want you to consider that. If you could actually see the armies of heaven contending for your spiritual welfare, we wouldn't believe our eyes. This is not just a Second Kings 6 kind of thing, like an Old Testament kind of thing, like, way back then when God still worked, but we're here 3,000 years later and we are more enlightened. Like, no, hardly. This stuff still happens. The problem is, now as then, I just don't see. Because I can't see what God is doing, I start to doubt what God can do. Funny thing, fear. 
This is the sentiment behind that wonderful expression that we're going to sing together in just a few minutes. Is be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. It seems like the author just lifted that from this scene, doesn't it? So, an army on a hillside, surrounded by the army of heaven. And I absolutely love what happens next. Scene four. Take a look in verse 18. So when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord. Now watch this. Please strike these people with blindness. Okay, so a little reversal of fortune there. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. So a little white lie in that I think is kind of interesting, but it turns out all right in the end because he's not actually going to hide from them. Watch this. And he led them to Samaria, okay, which is the capital city. He's going to bring them right into the lion's den, Israel. Okay? And as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O oh Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened the eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And as soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, which is a tone of respect, he said, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? Like he's salivating. He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you've taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast, and then when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on the raids or on raids into the land of Israel. Now, this is the most ironic ending possible to this story because it's what no one expects. You've got the Syrian king having marched his army nine miles. That's like walking from here to Altman Hospital. Trust me, I did the Google Maps. Okay, that's a long time. He marches his whole army down there. And then when they finally get there, their eyes actually open up, and the entire army are wearing Steelers jerseys in the parking lot of First Energy Stadium before a Browns game. Like right on the doorstep of the King of Israel. I don't care, that's probably what it felt like. They're like, we're at the wrong tailgate party. What are we going to do? And then don't you love how the king of Israel reacts? Like he's salivating for like this big struggle and like he wants the slaughter. He goes, can I kill him? Can I kill him? And then Elisha does something nobody expects. He throws his enemies a party. What? Now if you're the king of Israel, you're going, come on, man. Like God basically gift wrapped my enemies to me and you want me to throw them a party? That's bonkers. <laughs> Here's the thing. Three guys here. Okay. You got the king of Syria, you got the king of Israel, and you got Elisha. These two guys are ruled by the fear of man. One guy is ruled by the fear of God. These two guys are focused on what man can do. This guy is focused on what God can do. These two ready their arms for war. This guy starts praying, and these two freak out. This guy throws mercy fest. So here's the principle. Fear of man twists your heart. Fear of God frees your heart. What kind of fear are you living in? 
fear of man makes you into something that you are not meant to be. Petty and paranoid and bitter and distant and wrenched like your soul is cramped up. Fear of God, not burying your head in the sand, but by widening your gaze. What do I mean by fear of man? Let me define that a little bit. I know that I am living in fear of man when I become obsessed with, guided by, stuck in, blinded by questions that start with two little words. What if? What if this happens? What if this goes wrong? What if this? What if they take this away from me? What if this doesn't go the way that I want it to go? What if? You follow me? We see fear of man show up in this text in two key places. First, we see it in Ben-Hadad and Elisha, who says, like, oh, my gosh, I want to kill this guy. And then secondly, ironically, we see it in the heart of the king of Israel before the Syrian army where he goes, let me kill them. Now, that's interesting. Two men, both of these men, total opposites. Both racked by fear of man. That's so interesting to me. Two people on opposite sides of a seemingly irreconcilable issue can't get God's best because they're ruled by the same kind of fear. Church, do you follow me? Contrast that with Elisha. Here he is in the middle of these two guys, but he sees the whole thing completely differently. Elisha's not concerned about what man can do to him. He's more concerned about what God has done for him, and so he doesn't get sucked in. He actually rises above. There's a sense of this like informed invincibility that comes with fear of God. It isn't this naive, blissful, like bury your head in the sand kind of thing. It's an informed, secure, steadfast, immovable belief that no matter what man could do to me, God has done great things for me. Now, in case you can't see through my very thinly veiled cultural references, let me get a little closer. Maybe the reason... Maybe the reason why our world has become so emotionally cold and maybe the reason why so many people are at each other's throats and maybe the reason why so many are living in such fear is because we are busy focusing on what man can do rather than celebrating what God has done. Fast forward 600 years to the New Testament. Just listen to this. This is what Paul says at the end of Romans 8 when he writes this. He says, what shall we say in response to these things? Chariots on hillsides, what do we say? Verse 35 of Romans 8, he says this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Do you know that's you? That's who he's talking about. Christians. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else of all the creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise God. But do you hear it in there? Persecution and famine and danger and peril and sword. still there. Chariots on hillsides. But 
those things cannot separate us from God's greatest gift, mercy to sinful man shown in the cross of Christ. So let's go one step further. Because we need to extend this out. Because everything up until now has just been personal. This is you and the Lord. But I believe there are cultural, horizontal implications for this kind of gospel. Could you imagine what it would be like if Christians lived less out of what man can do to us and actually lived in the freedom celebrating what God has done for us? What if we lived in the confidence that is ours in Christ? Actually live that way. What would we not get sucked into? What kind of fights would we not have? What would we not lose sleep over? What would we not get amped up about? Positively, what kind of banquets could you throw for your enemies? Hmm. What kind of counterintuitive love could you show to people with no strings attached if you were really free? What would it look like to freely show mercy to others as we have been shown mercy by God? Could you imagine what it would be like if Christians lived truly, honestly, deeply fearless? So with that question dangling out there, and this story in front of us, what do we do? How does an angelic army surrounding an ancient city on the other side of the world help me sleep at night, get along with my crazy family, and make sense of these things in 2021? Because we want to shake this thing called fear. How do we do it? I want to get to a definition of fear, because I think it's important to know what we're actually talking about here. Is it a feeling? What is it? I think it's actually deeper than a feeling. And so it's going to come up on the screen in just a second, and if you're taking notes, go ahead and write it down. Here's how I would define fear, biblically, based on this text. Fear is any belief in me that prevents God's best for me. Fear is any belief in me that prevents God's best for me. Fear prevents, fear limits, fear keeps something from happening, right? It's the cork on the bottle, the lid on the jar. Fear is any belief in me that prevents God's best for me. In the case of this text, God's best for the servant, this nameless dude who's following Elisha around, is to rest securely in God's protection. But based on what he sees, this belief creeps in and says, oh, we're as good as dead. And so he gets stuck in this fearful position, unable to enjoy God's best. See how that works? Fear is any belief in me that prevents God's best for me. So how do you counteract that? So in the last few minutes together, I want to give you just three quick tactics to counteract fear in your life. And I didn't intend this. It just happened to be this way. Uh, W-A-R. So if it helps you. Take, make war on your fear. I don't know. W-A-R. Here's the first one. Tactic number one. Watch. Watch. How many of you drove in a car to get here this morning? Quick show of hands. Or rode in a car. Okay? Most everybody. Those of you online, it doesn't matter. You're sitting there and that's awesome. So, here's the thing about cars. Cars just have, cars have gauges on the windshield, or on, down here on the dashboard, but they've got this giant windshield. Are these gauges important? Yeah. Is the windshield important? Yeah. They're both important. Understanding how they work together is really what's crucial. It's a kind of a way of understanding our emotional life. Hear me on this. Our emotions are wonderful gauges. They're terrible guides. Our emotions are great gauges, but they're terrible guides. Here's what I mean. They're great gauges. They help us understand what's happening under the hood of my life where I can't see. Not while I'm going down the road just trying to live my life, and then like the check engine light comes on. I'm like, oh, what is that? 
I need to watch that. Watch the gauges, but look out of the windshield. Make sense? Here's where most of us get in trouble. Most of us err in one of two places, and we err in the extremes. Most of us, when it comes to the gauges, we fixate on them or we ignore them. Like we fix it, oh my gosh, this is terrible, it's nothing going to work out, oh my gosh, I'm going to paralyze, and then we get stuck in this place, right? And we've all been there, like I get there, and it's this terrible, debilitating place to be. That's a good thing to see your gauges, just don't obsess over them. Or, the other extreme, and this is some of us, we ignore the gauges and go, everything's going to be fine, I'm doing fine. You keep cruising down the road like that, what's going to happen? Not good things. But if you focus on the gauges and obsess over them and never look out the windshield while you're driving your car like this, what's going to happen? Right? You're going to end up wrapped around a tree. So gauges and guides. Our emotions are wonderful gauges. We need to watch for our emotions. When I'm tense, that's important. When I'm fearful, that's important. Don't dismiss it. So that's watch. Second tactic is we need to ask. We need to ask. Ask. What is going on? Why is this happening? About 10 years ago, um, Mandy and I hit a wall in, in our marriage and just in our life. And like it was the same, we just couldn't get past it. It was one of those like really thick walls in life. Like you can't get through it. You can't go around it. You can't go under it. Like every time we talked, like we just come and hitting on the same kind of stuff, the same issues over and over and over again. And like I got fearful because I'm going, oh my gosh, like, I can't figure this out. I should be able to figure this out. Why can't I figure this out? That's me. That's how I deal with fears. I get intense. I don't think that'll surprise you. But I got fearful. And Mandy got fearful. We got stuck. I mentioned this proverb a couple weeks ago. I'm going to surface it again. This is Proverbs 20, verse 5. It says, The purposes of a man's heart are deep water, but a man of understanding can draw them out. And so what we did is we committed to several months spending time with a Christian counselor who was able to probe these really deep stuff in our hearts that has been down there for a long time that I couldn't see clearly and she couldn't see clearly, not an overstatement, saved our marriage and saved our walks with Jesus. Because this was a very wise woman who was able to probe these deep places that I didn't know I had down there. It was a really scary place in our life. But we had to ask these questions. What is happening? What is going on? Ask questions. And let me give you a little bit of a tip on this one, just personal word for you. One thing will prevent you asking questions or asking for help. Pride. And I know it because I've got it. Because as soon as I go, I need help, what that means is that I'm also confessing that I don't know everything and that I can't fix this all by myself. And so my word for you is humble yourself and ask the questions. So watch your emotions. Ask questions. And then this last thing, remember Remember, this is this third tactic. This came up really in our house, too, uh, with our daughter Hannah. She's 11. And a couple of years ago, Hannah had this, like, fearful time right at night. And it was really tough for us because, again, as parents, you know, if you're a parent here, you hate to see your kids suffer, don't you? And she had this really hard time at night where she was just fearful. And it was anxiety and fear, like, playing off each other. And it was paralyzing just for our family rhythm. And so we talked to another counselor who... um, specializes in walking kids through these seasons. And of course, we're as parents going, we should be able to figure it out. <laughs> and so what this counselor told us is like, you know what you need to do is, is one of the tactics is to, is to draw upon these great things in scripture 
And so we, Hannah actually created a little book. It was like a little handbook that she kept by her bed. There were all these little scripture references where she copied down little verses in scripture, like, like Isaiah 41.10. It's a great one. It's God saying, I will be with you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Right? Psalm 139, even the night will be as light to you. These great scriptural promises. Here's why this is important. When I'm tempted to doubt what God can do, it's helpful to remember what God has done. And so it is this look in the rearview mirror, this building of this backlog, this library of God's victory over my fear. So we need to remember. Before we close, though, something else needs to be said. Because up until now, like, you could walk out of here this morning and go, yeah, no, just don't be fearful. Got it. I'll work on that. It's not really what I want for you. Because if you think an army full of fiery chariots and horses on a hillside a couple thousand years ago is something, that's nothing compared to the cross. And that's the good news of the gospel. It isn't just that like God did this kind of stuff back then, and Old Testament God is great, and yada, yada, yada. But the truth is, is Jesus came and died so that we would not have to live in fear of today or fear of tomorrow. I don't know if you caught that in, in Romans 8, when I read that a little bit ago. That all this fearlessness is rooted in Christ Jesus. And so let me be very candid. If you're not in Christ Jesus, you have good reason to fear. Fear today and fear tomorrow. But if you are in Christ, if you've confessed your sins and trusted him for your eternity, you have no reason to fear forever. Fear is a very real thing today. I'm not going to shame you for feeling it. You can be a Christian and struggle with fear. It's okay. It's this continual gospeling of our own heart going, God, what have you done? God, look how good you are. Look at what you've given me. Look at the cross. It's a dimmer, not a light switch. You don't need to feel ashamed and you don't need to feel embarrassed. You need to know that in those moments, the great God of heaven sees you, knows you, loves you, and just wants you to come to him. Not so that you can come to church and pretend to be happy. Don't do that. But so that you can come to him and be holy. We are going to sing this song. It's an old one, Be Thou My Vision. And it is a prayer. I think that's important. This is asking, going, God, be thou my vision, Lord of my heart. Let's pray. God, we know that we live in a very dark world. There are chariots and armies on hillsides all around us, wherever we look. And God, we know that we need your help. God, we confess that we're fearful, and sometimes... We don't know what to do with it, and, and we feel ashamed, we feel embarrassed. We shouldn't feel this way, and help us, God, in those moments just to know that you don't care about our shoulds, and you see us as we are, and you love us anyway. What a gracious, good, merciful, loving God you are. So, Lord, as we pray this prayer to you, I pray that you hear our hearts. You give us confidence, not in what we can do, but in what you have done, what you have given. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for Jesus. In his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, 
It goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.